didn't do my uh, speaking exercises this morning. This stadium has hosted the most Super Bowls. Is it A, the Hard Rock Stadium, B, New Orleans Superdome, C, Raymond James Stadium, or Delta, Rose Bowl Stadium? Which has hosted the most Super Bowls? Question number two. Super Bowl cities. This city has hosted the most Super Bowls. Is it A, Dallas, B, Los Angeles, C, Miami, or D, New Orleans? If it'll help, I'll flick, flip back. Maybe. Which stadium hosted the most Super Bowls? And a related question, which city hosted the most Super Bowls? All right, guys, I'm glad you're here. Before we get started, I know we have one new person over here. Welcome, Wes. Do we have anyone else here for the first time? Because we're going to need to hook you up with a, um, a table. So if you see me or see Scott, where are you, Scott? Stand up. Scott, over here afterwards, if you're not seated with the table, we can get you taken care of. And while Derek is working his way up to the stage, Heavenly Father, I ask your blessing on Derek. I ask your blessing on the preparation he's made. And really, Lord, I pray for the guys here that as, we, as the Holy Spirit um, speaks to us, that we will move forward with action. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, good morning. So uh, I went to the doctor yesterday uh, to get my finger kind of sewn back together. And uh, he said, what in the world do you do? Your hands are filthy. Your hands are all cut up. And, you know, of course I told him what I did for a living. You know, I read a lot of theology. I do a lot of typing. And, uh, you know, 12 stitches later, well, he actually asked me, do you want anesthesia, uh, Rambo, or, you know, would you rather... uh, have some painkillers. So 12 stitches later, I'm back home typing on my keyboard and uh, glad to be here this morning. But today I'm going to talk to you um, a little bit about history because history is something that most people are uh, traumatized by from their time in high school where they had a boring history teacher. But I'm fascinated by history. Why? Well, because history is about people. It's about how people shaped politics and religion and um, how they, they changed history by their decisions and philosophy. And philosophy is really um, just history with people examples. Uh, so if you look at philosophy, you look at the biblical text, and you look at history, that's how you do exegesis. That's how you study your Bible. So our text today is about two babies, two babies that were born into a society that I wanted to study about. Um, And if you look at some of the ancients like Aristotle, he said that babies are important not for themselves, but only for their potential. So why 
did society act like this? And did they value children? That was my biggest question. Um, did they value the Imago Dei? that we are made in the image of God. So as we look at the biblical text and we see through the people into the narrative, um, we got to ask them, what were they thinking? What was their situation in life and how did it affect them? How did the cultural stimuli that they were exposed to uh, make their decisions? And in our text this morning from Luke 1, verses 5 through 80, we have an old man well past his sexual prime, and we have a young girl who just barely has made it out of puberty. Both are visited by the angel Gabriel, and they're given an omen of conception. One scoffs, and the other is a little bit confused. One was punished, and the other was praised. Uh, both were going to have sons. One would be a wild-eyed outsider, and one would be kind of a radical insider. So... What was it like to be a child in the first century? Uh, what was it like to be a parent in the first century? So how did Dr. Luke view children as he was writing this book? And this question that I'm asking myself led me to this fringe uh, discipline of history called psychohistory. A psychohistorian, they look back on history and they put people, as it were, like on the couch and they analyze what they were thinking and all the, the things in their culture um, that would affect how they reacted. So Lloyd DeMoss, a uh, psychohistorian in the new psychohistory, he wrote about parent-child relationships and he said that adults throughout history have routinely called little children beasts, sinful, greedy, arrogant, lumps of flesh, vile, polluted, enemies, vipers, and infant fiends. He said, no parent wouldn't be incarcerated for child abuse. A very large percentage of children before the eight, born before the 18th century were what today would be termed battered children. So psychohistorians divide history into two different groups, from caveman times all the way until the Enlightenment in like the 18th century, they call it the infanticide phase. And it is amazing how many billions of children were killed. Almost all societies killed their children. And then from the Enlightenment till now, they call it the helping phase, when we have some um, new disciplines of developmental psychology. So I lo looking back on history, we really need to see how badly children were treated. I mean, look at the Spartans. They had a council of elders where you would bring your baby to them, and if it was sick or it was too small, they would cast it out, and they would literally throw it over the cliff. Or the Carthaginians, they were well-known for having a, a big brass idol with outstretched arms over hot coals, and they put the baby in the, the outstretched arms, and they'd pull the lever, and, and you know what would happen to that poor little baby. Um, infanticide was at an extraordinary level throughout most of history. Even Abraham, remember, in, in Genesis, he put his son on an altar. So in Rome, in the first century, there was something called the paterfamilias. That was the father of the family. And when a child was born, the midwife would put the baby on the ground, and if the father liked the child, he would pick it up. If not, it would be thrown out into the street. Uh, more recently, if you look at, like, the Apache Indians, they were known to be great parents. Uh, they would be doting over their children. They, child sexual abuse was nearly non-existent with the Apache Indians, but the mothers 
um, although they loved their child, they would strangle them if they were sickly or if they were too small or they cried too much. So were John and Jesus in this passage born into a different world? That was my biggest question. Colin Haywood, a psychohistorian, wrote of the recent past, unwanted babies would die on the street or maybe if a child was lucky, he or she would be picked up to be a slave, a prostitute, or a mutilated beggar. You know, what's funny is in uh, the 1700s, liquor and opium were often given to children, um, and Dr. Hume called it Godfrey's cordial. It helped them sleep a little bit. So prior to the Enlightenment, infant mortality was at about 25%, and half of all children didn't live to the age of 10. So a priest in Italy in 1507 said this. He said, the latrines resound with infants that have been thrown into them. C.J. Rolfe uh, notes, it was not uncommon in England in 1890 to see children who'd been thrown into the street and had died. Amazing. So Luke clearly took this passage and he wrote to tell us there's a significant change coming in the world and significant about how we treat children because there are two babies that change the world. This is noted by uh, secular historians. Reader Asgard uh, said this, Christians held what was considered a radical countercultural view in Rome and were widely known for their care for orphan children because Christians believe in the Imago Dei that were made in the image of God. Um, uh, Callistus was the f uh, a man that in the f about the first century, he uh, developed something called a uh, life watch where people could leave their babies and Christians would adopt those babies. Um, Basil uh, of Caesarea, a bishop, he pushed to ban infanticide in the Roman Empire in the first century, but it wasn't until Constantine that it was illegal, Constantine the Great. But what we're going to see in our passage in uh, verses 15 and 32 is Constantine wasn't all that great. Um, we're going to see who was really great. So until not that long ago, people took their children to public executions. And what they would do is they would beat their child before the execution so that their child would remember that day and they'd have a scar to remember the uh, beheading or the crucifixion. Um, it wasn't uncommon for people, even in, when I was a child, to beat their kids, right? Uh, dad would come home with his belt. There would be paddles, there would be sticks, there would be whips. And there was something that uh, maybe you remember, a pear-shaped paddle called uh, uh, the flapper that had a hole in it that was designed not to make it go faster, but to cause blisters to be raised on the child. This was commonplace. Remember, wait till your father gets home? Um, just think of first century when John and Jesus were born. So we know... Even from, like, if we look at uh, modern movies, like Orphan Annie, um, there was a terrible orphanage, Oliver Twist, or even fun movies. You look at a tyrannical father, like in Mary Poppins, you know, a fun story, um, or uh, think of another one, Sound of Music, a really tyrannical father. But in, in Luke 1, we see that a new light is coming through these two babies that were made in the Imago Dei, in the image of God. So... There was a birth announcement to a old man and a young child. I think I'm going to go backwards. There we go. Um, child labor was a big thing as well. 
Okay, so what, what we're going to do is I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share with you, I know that um, we haven't quite got into the text yet, but I want to share with you two different um, styles of studying the Bible. One is form criticism. This is what we usually use on Sunday mornings when Pastor Marty preaches. He goes with the history, the language, um, the concepts, and he brings out the theological truths from that passage. Um, this is primary in what we do with exegetical study. Um, this, the, the fringe, I use fringe history, I'm going to use a little bit of fringe um, Bible study, is redaction criticism. This is where you take the author of the book and you look at him as like a redactor or an editor. And you see the general motifs and all of the, the uh, general concepts that he was trying to do. And we're trying to look at what Luke thought of babies. How did Luke, Luke think of uh, children in a, in a society that disregarded children? So all the way back in Genesis, we see that the progenitor was extremely important. So remember the uh, patriarchs, Abraham and Isaac, um, they were trying to have children. And at, at one point, they even sold their wives into sexual slavery to foreign kings. Abraham did it twice, and Isaac did it once. They were always trying, it seemed like they were trying to thwart God's plan for these children. However, God's plan can never be thwarted. Um, so sons were important. They were crucial to the paterfamilias because that child had to support mom and dad when they got older, and they had to carry on the family name. So um, as we look at this, I want to uh, give you some general uh, lessons I learned from this redaction criticism. One is we know that, that Luke was a fan of history. He was intellectually brilliant. But the thing that is important to me is that the people that, that he wrote about were still alive when this book was published. So he had to be extremely accurate in what he told. Um, second thing is that Luke was comparing John and Jesus, possibly. Now, this is, this is my redaction. It seems like there was a great comparison of how John and Jesus were just polar opposites. Uh, third thing is that Luke admired John as the greatest prophet, but he knew there was the actual greatest prophet was Jesus. John was number two. Jesus was number one. Um, number four is Luke understood conception. Um, he valued children. And what's interesting is in ancient literature, uh, they most of the time they did not talk about children. There were no children in ancient books. Um, and so uh, Luke, when he's writing this book, he actually talks about the baby in the belly of Elizabeth. And the baby kicked. Okay, this was very important. One, because of his medical training. Two is, is if you look at the Puritans uh, in you know, the, the 16th, 17th century, they believed that a, a child was not a person until the quickening, when that child would kick in the belly, and then that child was a person. Um, we see this all the way back in Scripture that, that John um, kicked in his mother's belly, and, and Luke knew that that was uh, a viable infant, even when the infant mortality was so high. Um, so then the, the fifth thing is, is Luke used Evangelion, the good news of Gabriel's message, um, about John's birth, there was good news about Jesus' birth. There was good news about Jesus' uh, miracles, good news about his death. And in Acts, we see all they spoke about was his resurrection, the good news of the resurrection. So um, I've given you the, the general things. Let me get to some specific motifs where I think that uh, um, 
there was a great comparison. So I have a chart. You have your handout. I'd, you can go through those and, and actually note which verses I found these in. But first, Zacharias and Elizabeth were both descendants of Aaron. And for years, let me tell you, they had a lot of sex to try to make a baby. But it was quite obvious in their old age that she was barren. So um, they had no boy, which in verse 25 we see was a great disgrace. They had no progenitor. They had no paterfamilias. Um, they were broke without a child. So uh, Zacharias doubted the message from Gabriel in verse 20. Um, he was serving in the temple. This was his one moonshot. And he heard from God and he doubted, so he went away mute. Then there was this, this little Mary, this little Joseph um, from the line of, of King David. And they were like 14 and 15 years old, presumably. Mary, like I said, had just finished puberty, and she was now fertile. So she had never tried. Not like Zachariah and Elizabeth. She had never tried. And Joseph was pure, too. He had never tried. But can you imagine Zachariah put yourself in this situation, maybe of Elizabeth? He came home, and he, he was uh, pretty spunky when he came home. And he said to his wife, hey, let's get it on. Um, it's time. And I don't know if he lit, lit some candles, you know, listened to a little Marvin Gaye. I don't know what he did, but it, it, it was pretty funny because they were well beyond this. And so the text almost uh, has that as, as humor. But can you imagine Mary, young Mary, going home a little confused and pregnant? Uh, unbelievable. Zechariah had this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to serve in the temple. He was basically highly favored because he was chosen from his job and from a lot, from a lottery, and he had this one-time opportunity to be highly exalted. But we see in the passage um, that Mary was told she was highly um, uh, favored by Gabriel, not for her work, not for what she was going to do, but because of God's grace that was shining down on her, she was highly favored. So old Zach and Liz, you know, they got home, they were a little embarrassed. Um, in verse 24, we see that she hid for five months. I don't know if it was because she didn't know the pregnancy was going to take. I don't know if it was because they were so old and it was a little embarrassing, but she hid for five months. Um, you know, maybe uh, they wanted to make sure the pregnancy was successful before they told their friends and family. But in verse 65, we see after she had the child, the neighbors were all filled with awe. And it says, people were talking about all these things. People were talking behind their back, like, what in the world just happened? So John, it says in uh, verse 15, that he will grow up great in the sight of God. So it's good because among men, he wasn't all that great, right? He was uh, um, a little bit antisocial. He was a Roman culture weirdo due to his food and his isolation and his clothes. He took a Nazarite vow, we see in verse 15, and that would make him even unique among his Jewish peers. So John was uh, not great, but he did all these things to make himself holy, which is set apart. He did this to, to make himself pure for God, and he was definitely set, set apart. He was definitely a downcast of society, um, and uh, he was known as the penultimate prophet, number two. Um, he, he was great, but there would be someone who would, um, in verse 32, be absolutely great, not because of um, anything other than he was great because he was God. 
Not great in the sight of God. He was great because he was God. That's verse 32. Um, so as we, uh, we move into the, the last few comparisons, I'm not sure where I am on the, uh, the chart here, but uh, okay, I'm on the bottom. Lived in exile. So we know that uh, John lived in exile for a long time. That's all it says in the, in the text. He didn't just set up a small camp for a short time. It said he lived in the desert in verse 80. This is all we know about his adolescence is that he lived in the desert. I don't know when he left home. Um, it could have been young, but it, it wasn't for a short time. So Jesus was forced into exile by Herod when Herod um, said that they wanted to kill all the baby boys. He was in exile in Egypt, and then they had an exodus from Egypt, um, and then he lived among people. He wasn't in exile. He, lived, he had lonely places where he went to talk to his father, but he lived among the people. Um, Jesus wasn't living in exile. He ate and drank with people in the downcast of society so much that they called him um, a glutton and a lush. Um, big comparison. So John lived for a short time, and his ministry faded quite, quite quickly after he died. Um, in verse 35, we see that Jesus had an everlasting ministry. He overtook the Davidic throne, which is for eternity. So you see the comparison. John was said in verse 15 that he will reconcile his father's, uh, the father with the son. But, but Jesus didn't need that because he already had perfect union with his father. Um, Jesus, uh, in verse 33, said he will rule over the throne of Jacob forever and if we look in verse in chapter 2 verse 10 we see that that although john was said he'd be a joy to his parents um and a delight to his parents we see that the angels said that this good news is coming there will be a joy to all peoples see the comparison so we know nothing of john's intellect his education even really what he preached but in jesus we see an amazing intellect we see someone who who really knew how to get to the heart of the ministry. John was hated by um, the elites. He was hated by um, um, Herod, and he ended up getting his, his head cut off in isolation. Um, and he called them snakes. He called them vipers. He called them hypocrites. Jesus was also insulted, but he knew exactly the right words to say to hit them right at the heart of what they needed. So there was great things about John, but there was everything great about Jesus. John was the greatest prophet that ever lived. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth, among those born of the woman, there is no one greater than John, yet even the least of the kingdom is greater than he. That's the gospel. That's about you and me. That's the imago Dei of who God created us to be eternally redeemed, changed forever by what Christ did. Because Jesus was, as our text says, the son of the most high. So there were two babies that changed the world. So I want you to uh, just have uh, one takeaway, um, and then you have some questions to, to talk about. You, have to, you don't have to buy into my psychohistory or my redaction criticism, um, but you do have to buy into the fact that the Bible is absolutely brilliantly written. It's inspired by God. And then you have to decide whether it's true and how that affects your life and how you will follow Jesus. So um, on the back of your sheet, you have uh, some quotes from the research. 
and uh, just thank you for listening, and I, um, I just hope that, that you can see how amazing God is in inspiring the book of Luke. So let me pray, and, and we'll be into our groups. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the book of Luke. Thank you that we can study this this morning. And Lord, I just thank you for the brilliance that he put into his work. Lord, bless our time together as we talk and as we discuss and as we see how this applies in our lives. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. the drill if you don't have a table come see me otherwise let's get to the tables and be back in at at, uh, five other places